Particle would like to acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional owners of this land we record on, the Wadjuk people. We also acknowledge the role of Aboriginal people as the first scientists in Australia. Welcome to the Particle Podcast, where we talk about science and the people who just love it. I'm your host, Rose Kerr, and this season we're talking all things environmental. Today, I'm joined by Patrick Schober, space nerd and planetary science PhD student. He stopped by to chat about protecting the space environment and mini moons. All right, so welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Starting off, what do you actually do? Oh, that is always the question I get from my family. Um... (laughs) So I am a PhD candidate at the Space Science and Technology Center at Curtin University. Uh, I am a researcher on the team looking at the data we collect with the Desert Fireball Network. I specifically look at the impact data we collect and see where that asteroidal debris comes from in the solar system. So I do a lot of modeling and a little bit of rock stuff, but mainly on computers here. Have you gotten to hold any of the meteorites that have come to Earth? Yeah, I've, I've looked at a bunch of meteorites, not as many since moving here, but my background is actually in meteorite sample analysis. So um, I did my undergraduate at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, where I did my senior thesis at NASA Glenn Research Center looking at asteroidal regolith and I did a lot of meteorite characterization there so doing study and an internship at NASA that's pretty insane yeah um it's I don't I I don't know what to expect before but when most of what I've learned there is uh how the government works Ah, (laughs) so NASA's great the people there are study various things from propulsion systems to different air like studying airplanes to obviously astronauts and that kind of lunar samples but um yeah it's it's definitely a different environment from the university it's a lot more hoops you have to jump through as Mm. well so it's great work that you do but you have to you have to really be in that system as well was that always a goal of yours to work there yeah i mean growing up in the u.s yeah nasa's always like that's what you grow up on like videos of people landing on the moon so obviously that is always in the back of my head but um not necessarily nasa all the time i always wanted to do kind of space related things um from high school onward at least Bonus fun fact. Did you know that NASA stands for National Aeronautics and Space Administration? Did you want to be an astronaut when you were a kid? I want to be an astronaut right now. (laughs) (laughs) How do you get to be an astronaut? Is that something you could actually legitimately aim to do? Um, So someone with my background, yeah. I'm actually, I think I hit the qualification standard for the first time this year. I just uh, didn't have enough time to submit the paperwork. Um, so I didn't apply, but next time I will, um, to apply, you need to have like a relevant STEM career. It doesn't necessarily mean you're an engineer or like study space stuff like me. You could be a physician. So there's physicians that have been astronauts that are astronauts. 
they also take a lot of uh military and uh fighter pilots oh, kind yeah. of thing i mean all the original astronauts were test pilots so they were the crazy <laughs> crazy guys who would be like okay we built this new plane you you test it out oh. let's see if it works so they were very used to working in those dangerous high intense situations but today yeah there's a more variety about half of them and then the last class that was chosen were military but yeah i would qualify now so that's how many cool. astronauts they're taking uh they don't really have a set period but for the last couple decades i think they've gone every four years or so they've t- uh requested applications so they had one this past year so the next one will probably be in like 2024 um and usually they'll get i don't know thousands tens of thousands of applicants and they have I think eight to 10 uh, people who get accepted into the program. So quite intense, very unlikely, uh, but you know. Oh, you gotta be in it to win it. Yeah. (laughs) You gotta try. So has that always been in the back of your mind as like an end goal or are you kind of just like, oh, if I need it, I'll give it a go? Yeah, I mean, it's so, it's such a hard thing to do. It's never, it's always in the back of my head of something to strive for, Mm -hmm. but it's never like a realistic thing. Like, I think I'm qualified, I could be qualified eventually to be a serious candidate, but like, yeah, it's very difficult to do. It depends what they're looking for. It's not just qualifications. It's also like the personality of the people, whether they can handle being in space and high, like those kinds of situations and uh, how they ha- or how they handle being under pressure, how they handle being in a small space for long and how other people can deal with that person in a small space for long. <laughs> so it's, it's uh, very multifaceted and there's a lot of things that go into that selection process. When you got to go to NASA, mm-hmm. do you remember how it felt on like the first day you walked in there? Yeah, it was, um, I guess everywhere I've done research. So undergrad, undergrad I like I, my undergraduate degrees in geology. So a lot of the people in my department would kind of have an unspoken uniform of they're always wearing field pants yeah. and hiking <laughs> shoes and Patagonia, whatever. <laughs> so they're, al- they're always ready to go on a hike to go look at an outcrop. And NASA, it's always, I don't know, they, they have like sort of dress up, like semi-formal with mm-hmm. a short sleeve button up shirt with their lanyard around their neck. Yes. So I was all about trying to like emulate that. <laughs> I was really excited when I first got like my um, my ID my ID uh, to get onto the onto the center every day, and then like driving on and just showing the security guard like I work here. So cool. So that was yeah, that was great. Would you ever leave it on after work just so you could have a little brag? <laughs> yeah, I just put it on a few hours before, you know. Walk around town like, yes, this yeah. is me. I work here. Yeah, it's a weekend. I have not been at work. No. <laughs> it could just be a fashion accessory. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> when you get to do something like that in, it was before your PhD, mm-hmm. how do you kind of pick your next goal? Because you've already achieved, like what could stand up after that? Well, yeah, I mean, that was a, that was an internship. So, I mean, I did work, th- uh, I was there for about a year, mm-hmm. uh, full-time for the whole summer and then the whole year part-time. But I, wa- I knew I wanted to go on and continue doing research and do my PhD. So it was 
more of looking for places and projects and people that I wanted to work with. Because, mm. um, uh, yeah, NASA does fantastic stuff, and I would like to go back there eventually. Um, but there's also tons of great research going around everywhere around the world. Yeah. So that's kind of how I ended up here as well, because my advisor... Uh, at NASA or one of my advisors at NASA is good friends with my advisor here oh, they, cool. or multiple of my advisors here so how long have you been in Perth uh three years in one week so that's exciting I, it's been yeah three years now and have you enjoyed it how's it been it's been much warmer than where I'm from yes yeah <laughs> so I really like that <laughs> um no it's been it's been really interesting um yeah, Perth is actually the furthest furthest city in the world from my hometown. So I cannot, oh, wow. the only way I can move further away is by going to space. Wow. <laughs> so no matter where I go after this, I will be moving closer, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember when you felt inspired to study what you've studied? Do you remember that moment of inspiration? I guess whenever growing up, I... I it wasn't from when I was a little kid I wanted to be an astronaut or something like that. Um, it's things have evolved along the way, but probably the first time was whenever uh, I'd be watching uh, like Cosmos series by like Carl Sagan or uh, different things on like the Science Channel back home when I was in high school. And then I really wanted to get into like astrophysics after that. So that, w- that was probably like the first... Uh, the first time that I was got really interested in space, but um, what I always tell uh, I do volunteer at the local primary school oh. teach science classes, and one of them asked me about how like I got to the point where I am now. I always tell them I changed my decision along the way. Mm. It was never oh this instant this is exactly what I want to do. I know I want to study the orbital evolution of meteoroids <laughs> that hit the, or impact the earth every day. Yeah. No, like, no, when I was your age, I wanted to be a neurologist or something. Um, yeah, so things change and that's fine. Um, but yeah, definitely when I was in high school was the first time I was really interested in space. Can you explain for us what the Desert Fireball Network does? Yeah, of course. So the Desert Fireball Network is a system of cameras spread across... Australia and throughout the outback um, and each each camera or each observatory has a fisheye lens that records the whole night sky all night so at every observatory you're getting a full view of that of the night sky at that location throughout the night every day of the year Wow with that information whenever what we're really looking for is whenever asteroidal debris hits the atmosphere and you usually call these shooting stars um, Whenever these are really bright, we call them fireballs, hence the Desert oh. Fireball Network. So whenever one of these fireball, or whenever the, this big chunk of rock hits the atmosphere, it starts burning up, we can see that on multiple cameras. And using those observations, you can triangulate the path it would took through the atmosphere as it was burning up. If it's large enough, then it will slow down to a point and then the, there will still be a rock left behind, but oh. it won't be glowing anymore. Mm-hmm. It will then land on the ground as a meteorite. So that's kind of how it ties into my undergrad where I did a lot of meteorite research as opposed to now where I do a lot of orbit research. Using the Desert Fireball Network, we can use our observations and model 
that trajectory we saw forward in time to predict where the meteorite landed on the ground. And then we can also model it backwards in time to see where the rock came from in the solar system. One of the biggest problems in planetary science and looking at meteorites is we have tons of meteorites in the world's collections, over 60,000 meteorites. But most of the time when you find those meteorites, they're already on the ground. You look, you pick up the rock, you say, okay, this isn't from Earth. Mm. And, but you, and you can do the typical analysis a geologist would conduct on any terrestrial rock. But in this case, we don't know exactly where it came from. Yeah. Whereas if I go out in the field and pick up a piece of sandstone in a, off a cliffside, I could say, oh, there's this piece of sandstone. It's below this layer of mudstone. It's above this layer of gravel or whatever else. And I can put it into that geologic context. Whereas we have tons of samples from space in the form of meteorites, but we don't know where they come from exactly. Most of them do come from the main asteroid belt, but exactly where is the question. Um, so one of the ways to get at answering that gap of knowledge um, is to send missions to space or send missions to these asteroids and actually go and pluck a rock off the surface and bring it back. And that's what the Hayabusa mission did with uh, asteroid Itakawa. There's currently two other missions going on right now one uh, Japanese mission, one uh, U.S. mission uh, to two different uh, asteroids. But to do this, it's really expensive, and it takes a lot of time, and you usually don't get that much sample back. You don't return much sample to Earth, whereas we're already getting tons of material hitting the Earth all the time. Mm. So with a fireball network, you can basically get at answering the same question except we're just waiting for the rock to come to us. <laughs> Delivery. And then, and then you use that, those observations to figure out where it came from after. How would you describe for the average person, not necessarily someone who is a scientist, how would you explain to them why that research is important? I guess there are a few reasons. Um, first off, just understanding that we can... We can better understand uh, the origin and evolution of our solar system. On a more applied side, which I'm definitely interested in personally, but one of the main reasons that we should understand the origin and evolution of our solar system beyond pure blue sky science is that uh, <laughs> a lot of this debris, is, it's, hit, it's hitting the Earth. That's what we're studying. We're studying the impact debris. And understanding that population might separate us from what happened to the dinosaurs. True. So you have understanding that population will help guide our observations of our telescopic observations of where to look for the next one that's going to hit. And also it will help us understand the material properties of those asteroids. So looking at the meteorites, we can understand what are the physical characteristics of these bodies and what if there's one coming towards the earth, what what should we do? Should you send a giant nuclear warhead out to space <laughs> and blow it up um, and create a bunch of pieces? Or should you slowly push it using a light, so like a laser or some, yeah, some impact device? People are thinking about this now. Another reason is because of what a topic I'm very interested in, and of course people in science love their acronyms, is in-situ resource utilization. 
That is quite a mouthful, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, usually you just say ISRU. Okay. So, so, but in situ resource utilization. And essentially all that is, is using, if you're doing uh, interplanetary travel, mm. getting things to space is really expensive. And at the moment, we're not really great at it. We strap a bunch of explosives to a stick and <laughs> we put all of the stuff that we don't want to explode at the tip of that stick and yeah. then that goes to space. So it's not, not really the greatest way you could probably do it but it's the way we can do it at the moment and that but that's really expensive so you can't bring everything with you so in situ resource utilization is essentially the concept that you have to use the resources from where you're going whether that be on mars and using hydrated minerals to extract water to make drinkable water or rocket fuel or whether using that on asteroids to do similar things or extract metals or things to create, I don't know, uh, radiation shielding or something like that. Um, So understanding the material makeup using fireball data and using telescopic observations is really important for ISRU and things like asteroid mining. Is ISRU something that we do currently or is that something that's like, you know, decades off in the future? Um, We, there has been a bit of research into ISRU techniques uh, recently, especially uh, now that the Artemis missions are planning to go to the moon and try to set up a permanent uh, presence at the moon. And in order to do that, you you need those resources. You need to use the resources on the moon and in that environment to sustain that presence. So yeah, people are um, starting to think about it. Um, There's been not a lot of research into the topic, even though if you watch any of the Artemis mission videos, they'll say, we're doing ISRU, like it's in the video, but I'll let you know, it's not, (laughs) I don't, I couldn't find any postdoc grants for it Mm. or anything. It's um, very, yeah, it's, it's up and coming, I guess. It's, it should be happening soon. Is there an element of considering the environmental impact on those places? Um, I guess not really. Space is pretty big. Um, maybe on the moon it might uh, generating dust and things like that. But um, yeah, right now we're still f- just figuring out how to do it, let alone the, like the ramifications mm. of doing it. Um, it'll be a lot more environmentally friendly compared to mining things on Earth. That's definitely for sure. What you makes ima- you say that? Well... If you're mining things here, you're extracting the minerals and the ores that you want, and then you're leaving behind this, the residue of this, uh, of the mining process and damaging drinking water and the local environments and changing the local geomorphology and stuff like that. And that's definitely a lot more burdensome on our planet, which has life and ecosystem and things other things to consider whereas on the moon um yeah the only thing off the top of my head is generating yeah too much dust for base to handle or something but otherwise um yeah there's not as much of a risk yeah i suppose because if it doesn't have life there then what is the like ecosystem to protect (laughs) in a way yeah, some people would argue they want to um, protect, protect like the pristine nature and to study it better. 
but otherwise, as far as the risks go compared to mining on the Earth, you could imagine in the future we get a lot of our resources from asteroids or from other planetary bodies, and then we kind of leave the Earth as that garden, not the we shouldn't touch it because <laughs> that's where we live. Mm, that's true. How do you feel then in terms of, I mean, this is just your opinion, uh, in terms of scientifically, do you think it's more value, say, for example, Mars? Is there more scientific value in trying really hard not to leave a footprint and seeing it exactly how it is or to try to get people there and get things from it to maybe the detriment of the planet? I think at first we should definitely protect um, uh, Mars from any biological or human kind of uh, damage to it. I mean, they do a lot of work whenever they send things to, uh, whenever they send rovers to Mars, they make sure that there's nothing, uh, no biological contaminants that could kill or damage any living organisms that exist on Mars. So they try to do a good job at that. Uh, for the moment, yeah, it's better to... <laughs> to kind of leave it and make sure that we don't yeah kill the only maybe other form of life yeah yeah it's risky yeah so it's yeah at the moment it's better to keep it safe we're going to jump across to some other questions that Oh, I guess they're a little bit silly, but we'll see how you go. Uh, if you're a part of the Desert Fireball Network, do you like to drink fireball? <laughs> <laughs> Only occasionally. <laughs> we'll take definitely, it. Definitely not normal. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, just regular whiskey. The fireball is a no. <laughs> <laughs> how do you feel about the fact that NASA merch has become such a fashion statement. How do you feel when you see other people wearing it? Oh, I mean, that's great. I mean, it's, I mean, that's just great publicity and to show like, oh, this is to awareness to like space stuff. Like, no, that's, that's an awesome thing. Do you have some good merch? Oh, I, I'm a fan of stickers, like trying to collect stickers for my laptop. Um, I have a NASA jacket from when I worked there. That's cool. Uh, yeah, but I don't, yeah, I don't know what else, but yeah, definitely a stickers for me is, that's like how, you know, if you go to a conference and you see a scientist with a bunch of mission stickers, that's like they're cool. legit. Yeah. I like that a lot. It's like badges, like uh, scouts badges, but on your laptop. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> have you ever dropped NASA as like a way to impress someone? Uh, not I try to avoid that. Aww. Yeah. Maybe sometime if if like if it's just like random people may like not usually <laughs> but definitely if like I'm on my CV or I'm applying yeah. for something yeah. like obviously I'm yeah. going to say yeah I interned at NASA for a year. Yeah. But yeah, I don't want to be too <laughs> pompous about it, I guess. I don't it's think so. <laughs> it's a, it's become a running joke in our office because uh there have been four four or five people in our within my office of like six people within our phd office like four of us have worked at nasa before interned wow. at nasa so for a while it was like a running joke like oh you interned at nasa wow you're so cool <laughs> and be like okay never mind <laughs> <laughs> nothing makes you feel less special than everyone else being special <laughs> yeah yeah no it's fine they worked at different places <laughs> yeah what do you think about space tourism? 
space tourism. Hmm. I don't. I don't have too much of an opinion. It, whether, I mean, at the moment, I think it's a positive thing. Any way that you can get more money into the into that market, if you can generate a private industry that uh, interest has interest in space, that I think that's more of a good thing. Um, I guess it depends um, as far as satellites go and stuff, but as far as space tourism goes, yeah, I have. I, th- I think it's a good thing because it provides that influx of money to an industry that needs it. That's true. If you couldn't get into being an astronaut for a space mission, but you were super rich, would you pay to go on like a space tourism trip? Yes. Yeah, cool. <laughs> I don't think I'm getting rich anytime soon though. <laughs> I like that the, that the opportunity to be an astronaut is somehow rated more likely than being rich enough for space tourism. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of cool. <laughs> Could you see a time where parts of space need to be protected, like kind of like how we have national parks? Mm, yeah, I mean, eventually, I think if in far future, I could imagine being like on going to the moon or to Mars and all the different places where like the first moon landing are and stuff like that, I think would be protected. Mm. And you could go and see like, oh, this is where Neil Armstrong uh, landed on the moon. And like go to Curiosity Rover, like Opportunity or, yeah, things like that, I think will be protected. Um, Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) That's such a good point. There'll be like, maybe there'll be tourist spots one day, like photo opportunities. Yeah, you could take a picture with the arm on Curiosity. Yeah. Or something. Thinking about space kind of as an environment, could you explain what space junk is? Yeah, um, it's not exactly what I what I study completely, so I'm I'm not fully knowledgeable. But uh, space junk is uh, so obviously we send we use satellites all the time in our daily life, whether it being our phone, our TV, and GPS in your car, um, and all those satellites have a lifetime, and eventually they run out of fuel or they become out of date and they are either sent into parking orbits or sometimes they get damaged and they break up and you have all this old all these old satellites still orbiting the earth this looping around like rubbish yeah exactly wow so uh, most of the stuff that's concern is in low earth orbit a lot of the smaller satellites have limited lifetimes, so they'll design them to break up in the atmosphere over time. So how big pieces? Um, they're usually, so CubeSats are kind of these modular small satellites that are built from pieces tens or like 10 centimeters. Oh, is, wow. I think one, 10 centimeters cubed is one U, I think. I don't know. Google it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, but... Um, yeah, so like a team at Curtin is actually working or going to launch a CubeSat uh, and it'll be sent to the ISS oh, next that's year. That's exciting. So, but things like that, they're designed to burn up, to burn up as not to create junk that's mm. orbiting around, which can cause, uh, which could be very dangerous to the satellites within similar orbits or in similar space and also the ISS, which is also in low Earth orbit. Um, the biggest concern about that is like if you have multiple collide, if you get too much debris in 
in those orbits and all of a sudden you have a cascading effect where you have one collide into the other which generates a bunch of debris that collides mm -hmm. into another and all of a sudden you just have a cloud of debris in low earth orbit that you have to somehow clean up in the future do we know how to clean it up yet oh let's just hope that doesn't happen yeah are there yeah. people kind of who look at that problem uh and set rules like no you can't launch yeah, I think there's, I, th I don't know how well uh, standards are set internationally and it's kind of hard to control to yeah. when someone just from uh, a country launches a satellite, it's uh, kind of hard to control that process. Mm. Um, I know last year, uh, I think India was conducting a test with either satellite defense or capturing one They and they blew up a satellite so there was a bunch of debris all of a sudden the number of like debris in low earth orbit and number of pieces of debris uh in low earth orbit increased by thousands in wow. like one instant <laughs> so it's uh yeah that's in incredibly frowned upon within the interna international community but um it's kind of hard to control yeah Hopefully a solution comes about sometime soon. Yeah. So, I mean, some people do work on uh, using nets and like other satellites shooting nets at wow. the satellites to deorbit them and stuff like that. You can find videos online. I'm definitely going to that up. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So that is the thing. Like some people are already thinking of how to solve the problem that hasn't really become a problem yet. But yep. um, hopefully it doesn't come to that. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a better idea, doesn't it? To try to solve it before it becomes yeah. a bigger problem. What is an unexpected skill that you've learnt on your research journey? Hmm, unexpected. Um, well, as far as skills go, I mean, I think if you told me three or four years ago that you'd be doing what would, many would consider astronomy, mm. that'd be <laughs> definitely like, oh, I don't know, there's no way. Yeah. Um, like, as I studied meteorites before, so... Um, a lot of geologists uh, don't do tons of work as far as programming goes. Uh, there's definitely exceptions to that rule, but one of I've definitely for my PhD, I've learned a lot more about how computers work. Yeah. Essentially, I've definitely learned a lot about planetary science, but I think it's equally matched by the how much I've learned about how computing works, and I've done a lot of work at the Posi Supercomputing Center. Wow. So a lot of my simulations are run there. Um, so yeah, definitely had to really <laughs> learn a lot about uh, just how computers work and programming and yeah, I don't know. It feels like a pretty useful skill at least. Definitely. I mean, especially if I, I always tell, uh, especially kids I work with, like if you're not sure, learn how to program, honestly. Yeah. like. You can use it for multiple fields if you don't really have to be good at math or anything like that. Um, it's more of learning the logic of how programming works. How do people react when you say go to a party or maybe to the pub or to, I don't know, to coffee with people you don't know very well? How do they react when you say, hey, I work with like meteorites and space stuff? I guess it depends. <laughs> uh, it depends on the people, but um, 
Yeah, they always they always ask about NASA because I feel like most people just associate like, oh, the only people who do a lot of space research is NASA. So they always ask that, and then that's usually how I end up being like, oh yeah, I actually did intern there, but <laughs> the, <laughs> I never bring it up. It's usually yeah, I say I work in space. Um, Every so often, I uh, get into a situation where I have to defend the moon landing. Um, it happens way more often than you'd hope, um, but I tend to handle those situations fairly well. Yeah, good. So it's fine. Um, but yeah, it's it's on that spectrum. It's actually usually yeah one end or the other. It's yeah. never like oh I'm not interested. It's usually oh that's so cool or oh but. Oh, yeah, because yeah, the one time I brought up, I worked at NASA, and they're like, oh, yeah, so moon landing, fake, right? <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I need to get into a different Uber. Yeah. <laughs> no. How, thinking along those lines then, how would you describe your actual PhD project to some people who have had a few too many beers at a party? Um, okay. Would you bother? Well, this, uh, usually how I explain it is if... In that case, um, I used to study rocks from space. Now I study how rocks from space move. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty good. That's about it. Yeah. <laughs> I look at their orbits, so how they go around the sun. That's, yeah. That's all. <laughs> that's actually pretty good. It's good for children, too. Yeah. <laughs> or family members. Yeah. Hey Do your family members, are they scientists? Um, no. Everyone in my family is a uh, medical oh, field. Wow. So everyone... Actually, in my immediate family is a physician. I have both of my parents are physicians and both of my sisters are physicians. Oh, you're like so, the black sheep. Yeah, I'm the rebel. I study <laughs> space. No, they'll, they'll, the dinner, around the dinner table, if we're all there, they'll talk about, oh, what's going on at the hospital or what's, what the, what kind of patients or whatever they had to deal with that day. And then every so often, like, they all turn silent and turn to me and be like, so how's the... So how's the space rocks? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, they're good. Space, is, space rocks are good. <laughs> Did you ever feel like you needed to study that as well? Um, no, may, maybe when I was little, because everyone, especially in that, I mean, at that point, my sisters were like not physicians, but with both my parents being doctors, the, everyone definitely was always like, oh, what doctor are you going to be? Oh. Like, it was always expected of me. And so maybe that was one of the reasons why when I was really, when I was uh, in like elementary school, uh, middle school kind of thing, I wanted to be like a neurologist. Because like, oh. That's a type of doctor. Yeah, that's a type yeah. of doctor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, kind of had to deal with that, but it's fine. <laughs> Are you excited to be a doctor of space rocks? <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, but pe people will be like, oh, oh, now introduce Dr. Schober and be like, no, that's my parents and, and, and actually my sister. <laughs> oh, no. You're all <laughs> Just call be. me Patrick. <laughs> oh, yeah. that's really fun. No, uh, no it'd be, yeah, it's going to be interesting. I guess, especially as far as PhDs go as, and PhD students and my advisors, like, in, imposter syndrome is very real <laughs> like i it'll be definitely weird when i finish and be like oh dr dr schober or dr patrick schober or whatever how do you balance doing a phd because it's so much research and it takes mm -hmm. up so much of your time how do you still not just just 
die of stress and go insane yeah Yeah. Uh, (laughs) no it is very difficult um yeah uh like i said for me the especially being here at curtain and doing a australian kind of style phd where it's a lot more independent and on your own that helps me a lot it might not help everyone who need like people who need set guidelines and schedules and advisors who say okay we're going to meet every other day and discuss what you did and you need to get this done by this time um those people won't do as well but um as far as just phd in general it's very (laughs) very important to have other things to do beyond your research it's and good to like take time off and um be productive when you um when you can uh it's not any help for you or your research to go in uh, at 7 a.m. and you're really exhausted and all you're going to do is sit there and do nothing for a few hours, maybe go through YouTube videos or watch <laughs> the news maybe if you're really productive. Um, I've made a point to like, if if I don't feel like it, I'm not going to work. <laughs> I'm not. Um, so I'll go through a couple hours where I'm more productive than... I have been in the last couple of days and that's fine. It's mm-hmm. worked for me. I mean, I've gotten three papers published in the last year. So that's amazing. Um, or three first author papers published wow. in the past year. So I've been, I think I've been doing pretty good at the moment. <laughs> it's also never, it's never going to always be like that. Like I've done, I've been really productive in the last year, but to get my first paper out, which um, <laughs> I, I love the first paper, but it took, it took a good year and a half, two years to get just get that one done, mm. and then I, I was kind of like over it. I'm so actually, <laughs> sorry, I was so over it <laughs> by by that point, and then I like moved on and tried to get things done really quickly. Um, but yeah, if you don't have a paper published, it's fine. It's uh, it takes different amounts of time, especially for the first one. Um, yeah, it's really common to have like other other people I work with and be like, oh, I haven't had anything done yet. I've already been here for a year or two or something and be like, that's, that's perfectly normal. Yeah. So basically you need to learn how to relax. Yeah. I was wondering what was your, what's your favorite fun fact that you've learned about space? Ooh, my favorite fun fact I guess not really a fact. Like now, going back to my first paper, I just really, I I really like the topic. All my, if any of the people I work with hear this, they're gonna really give me crap about it. But the, <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. Um, the first paper I wrote was uh, on mini moons. Oh, like <laughs> so, little moons. Little moons. Oh. <laughs> I really, yeah. Um, How little are mini moons? Okay, well, mini, yeah, smaller than the moon, I guess, Still. but. A mini moon is all, all it is, is, uh, I guess I didn't, I wasn't aware of them. So I guess it's a fun fact. Yeah. Um, but every so often, uh, when an object gets close to the earth and it's going really slowly, it's get, it gets temporary, temporarily captured by the earth and the moon. Oh. So it orbits the earth and the moon. Um, and then usually escapes after a year or maybe longer. Wow. It depends. Um, but they're usually, they're temporarily captured. And on average, the model a few years ago predicted at any given time, you'll have one object uh, a meter across. Where are they going after they get out of orbit? 
Uh, usually like back on it, on orbit similar to the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, usually you need one that, that's on an orbit similar to the earth. So usually they're kind of ejected back onto a similar-ish orbit. But yeah, the first paper I wrote was on an object, a uh, fireball we observed in the, with the DFN that likely originated from a mini moon hitting the earth. Wow. So it was, in, it was uh, orbiting the earth and then all of a sudden it accidentally got too close. <laughs> so that one did not escape. It's permanently here. <laughs> That's really cool. And good for you guys, to be honest. Yeah, it was, it was uh, really unexpected on that, on, uh, for that paper because it was my first one. But the news ate it up because it was yeah, like mini, mini moon. moon burns up in atmosphere above yes. Australia. So yes. it was like, what? What's going on? <laughs> That's so awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining yep. us on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you for listening to the Particle Podcast. You can find more of our content on all of the socials as well as at particle.scitech.org.au. Particle is powered by SciTech and everything we make is made in the wonderful science hub of Western Australia on Wadjuk country.